and welcome to the Midlife Manifesto podcast. I'm Leslie Ellis and this is the show where through the stories of my wonderful friends we celebrate and commiserate, share the ups and the downs and the challenges and opportunities that midlife brings. Today on the show I have my lovely friend Tina Markey. Tina, hello! Hello Leslie, nice to be here. I'm so glad you agreed to come on this podcast. Um, Tina is a friend we met cycling, didn't we? We did, we did, the beautiful queens. Oh, we're in in a cycling club called the Queensbury Queens of the Mountain and it is just the best club, a group of women I've ever had the privilege of mixing with. Yeah, it's probably the first group of women that I've ever sort of collaborated with I've always been a, a bloke sort of person and or on my own so this is really new for me being part of the queens and a load of women uh, my jaws yeah. dropped there because yeah. I just cannot believe that yeah yeah uh, yeah I've not been a big part of a women's group for it's really not been my thing but this really is because we're not girly girly into we're into like being adventurous and being women yeah, I think that's I think what that's I love. what's yeah, me too. I think what I love about the Queensbury Queens, I feel like I've been looking for them all my life. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. There's been this group of women that's kind of been missing, and all of a sudden they're all there together. They're all different, but they all make a a, a unit. They do make a unit, and they're the bloody nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. I have never done crazier things in my life than I've done since I joined the Queens. Mm, can't really say that, but. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you can't. That's for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, things like we open what you went swimming last Sunday. Yeah, three degrees. Oh, it was just freezing, but fabulous. Was it? it was fabulous. Yeah. Rachel and I were talking on the introductory episode. I was telling her about the open water swimming thing and that we kind of do all these crazy adventurous things. And I forgot that you'd been on that one. Yes, I had. Yes, because I just like to push myself. I don't like an easy life. Yeah, well, me too. Me too. I think, and that's what the queens do. They yeah. push you out of there. Somebody will come up with an outrageous suggestion and ridiculously fifty. Women will say, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Before you know it, you've got a team. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, so we met through cycling. Um, and the reason that I've asked Tina to come on the podcast is because Tina's got a really interesting story. So, as we're approaching midlife, some of us start to pare down our responsibilities, start taking it a bit more easy, enjoying life. Tina chose to celebrate middle age by becoming the foster carer of a child with complex health needs so tina that's kind of in direct contrast to what a lot of women start to think about in midlife so talk me through why you chose to do it and why 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 in middle age right well it's quite a long story I'm all right with that plenty of time when my husband and i first met he had um a brother, he'd lost his brother when he, my husband was 19, his brother was 17. He had uh, rubella before he was born, which gave him some medical needs. And I also grew up with an auntie who had cerebral palsy. So we both got experience. So before we had our own family, we said we'd like to eventually maybe foster or adopt. And that was kind of it. So this was when we were quite young. We'd been married a long time. So like when me and Johnny were talking when we were young about things we might like to do, it were things like learn how to ski you know yeah we just want travel to, i don't know i think um i'd come from a background looking after um 
my mum sort of like um we were close but you know i spent a lot of time helping my mum out when she was younger um and she's been a great mum and i think that reflects on who i am now though is mm. that sort of caring kind of role that i feel i'm i'm part this part of me it's ingrained in who i am mm. so fast forward um, to when paul and i got married then we found out that we we couldn't have children of our own um so we thought we would adopt we did try ivf but it wasn't really our thing um it, it, it there were all these children that didn't have a family what was the difference i fell in love with paul he wasn't blood related so i therefore could fall in love with anybody's child that that was my theory that was paul's theory yeah so we adopted our two eldest children um they were one and two when we adopted them and now they are almost 24 and almost 25 and that was ticking along nicely i worked paul worked um our eldest child turned out to have some health needs of his own which gave us quite a lot of experience of dealing with schools challenging situations i always had a bit of a thing that i always used to say to people when you've got a child with um health needs you need to develop a rhinoceros skin Mm. because once you've got that you can cope with anything and it's kind of how we we lived we had a lot of challenges with him 10 schools before we finally found one that he was settled in and he's doing really well now he's a really accomplished drummer and um musician right and he's really is excelling our daughter's mother to two children so anyway so you're now a grandma as well i am a grandma yes (laughs) two children that i look after every week um so our life was ticking along um we'd got our eldest son into um a school which was great our daughter was doing okay at school everything was ticking along nicely and then we had a letter drop through the letterbox from social services asking if we'd like to pass on any health needs about any of our children to potential adopters of a new boy that had been born and we were like oh Mm. a new one (laughs) (laughs) So we said, would you like to come to our house and chat? So she said, I'd love to. So she came up, we told her all about our eldest son's needs and things. And we sort of looked at each other, did Paul, my husband and I. And I said, are you thinking what I'm thinking? He went, well, what are you thinking? I said, well, I'm thinking I kind of like him. And he's like, yeah, me too. So at the time, it was thought that... um, Sean, who was called, might have some health needs himself. He was 12 months old and he couldn't walk and he couldn't um, sit up very well. Okay. Anyway, so we went through the process. We thought, well, we're we're getting on a bit. They probably will say no anyway, but we're going to go for it. And they said yes. Wow. So along arrives this tiny little one-year-old that was in like six to 12 month old clothes and he was like 18 months at the time couldn't walk had only just been crawling for a short while and went from being this quiet unassuming little thing to sort of fitting right in our family being a real live wire a real ball of fun and turns out not to have any health needs that were anticipated he turned out to be a speedy kind of he was like flash garden wow he was just amazing and we decided when we did this that um because i was quite career driven at the time i was really enjoying the job that i did that i would continue with that and that paul would give up work mm-hmm. so we wrote a reversal so he became full-time carer for sean and then life ticked along really nicely and Sean went to school and it was like, it was one of these children that everybody used to say, it's just amazing and he's just a delightful child. 
he, he didn't have anything about him that would irritate you. He was just... It was delightful. Aww. He really was a delightful young boy. He sounds it. But then came um, April 2015. And just before that, in December, he'd started with um, a lump in his neck and we took him to the GPs because they thought it was mumps and the mm -hmm. GP was like no it's not mumps never seen this before it's an infection in his saliva gland we're like okay when it's very unusual though I'll probably see you again thought no more of it off we went and then in April it flared up again over the school holidays did this lump so we took him to the doctors he gave him some antibiotics so then that was that and it went down and then when the antibiotics stopped up the lump came again so we took him back and they said they would refer us on to see somebody. So this takes us to the end of the Easter school holidays and I put his uniform on on the Monday for school and it just like dropped off him. Aww. And I was thinking, wow, he's shot up, they look a bit shorter. Yeah. But not really thinking anything about it. And um, anyway, so it was upstairs and he come down and he went to Paul. He went... Daddy said, I am fed up of my wee bean red. <gasps> and we were like, okay. So he's been on strong antibiotics. Is it mm. like that orangey colour that you can get when you've been on strong antibiotics? So Paul went and had a look and sure enough, it wasn't. Anyway, that turned out that we went to the GPs and we were quickly um, taken to be assessed and then in an ambulance over to the LGI, Leeds General Infirmary. Uh, where it turned out that Sean had acute lymphoblastic leukaemia and he was very poorly at the time. He, he, I think about 95% of his bone marrow was leukaemia cells, so he was extremely Aww. poorly at the time. And um, and that was just straight away, as soon as he went in, they realised he was that poorly? Yeah. Uh, the One of the consultants said to us, if this was an adult, because of how children respond to being ill, yeah. if this was an adult, they wouldn't be able to drag themselves out of bed, never mind sit up and be chatting. And, and he'd been going to school. Yeah, he'd been going to school, he'd been playing. He'd gone for a walk the day before. Oh, We'd gone Lord. out for a walk and he was like, I'm cold. I'm like, oh, you'll be all right. Oh. Clearly like, you know, bad parent. <laughs> but um, We've all been there. Yeah, we've all done it, haven't we? We've yeah. thought, oh, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll you'll be fine. I mean, on the same lines, Harvey once, he went into anaphylactic shock when he were out with Johnny. Yeah. And his face swelled up and his eyes were on either side of his head. Yeah. And Johnny just put him in a blanket when he started shivering and gave him a drink of Coke and took him outside to watch second half at football. So, you yeah. know, we've all done we've it. We've all done it because you just... <laughs> and children react so differently, don't they, do. they, when they're ill. So, anyway, Sean um, was admitted to hospital. We spent the first six weeks in there. He was very, very poorly. They thought he'd got a perforated bowel from the treatment. Anyway, we managed to come home, but that ensued of us spending... We worked it out um, in a year. I think the only month we hadn't spent in hospital was June. We kept having to in go... In a year? Yeah. Oh, Tina. We kept having to go in for line infections. He had sepsis, he had E. coli, he had pneumonia. Oh, that poor and little soul. It's all to do with the treatment that they give him. But it turns out with Sean's leukaemia, unfortunately, he'd got a mutated form of leukaemia, which meant it was very difficult to treat. So right. we knew initially when he was diagnosed that the chances of him getting through it were very slim. Right. So even though it didn't really occur to us at the time, it actually did. I think it, it, when I reflect back on that, we'd already begun to accept that this could be a short life. 
but things were going really well um but the problem was that the treatment was following the plan that it did for that kind of it was kind of like carbon copy right every um kind of reaction that you could get any adverse reaction or any unusual reaction he got um and it would just like don't tell us what the unusual adverse reactions are because we don't want to know what's oh, coming how do and, you how what kind of impact does that have when you're spending all that time in hospital so you were in hospital for 11 months effectively with yeah, Sean in and out in and out in and out how did you manage real life how did it affect your son and your daughter and at the time um so sean was diagnosed in april and at the time um stevie was in that's our eldest son was in a a part-time residential placement over at doncaster a college which we thought would be really good for him yeah um it was a specialist place and he went on a monday and came back on a thursday so that was great our daughter was old enough to stay at home Mm. um when you know she i think she was at college too at the time so she was okay to stay at home and um we just kind of like were there when we could be together and when we couldn't we would be there when we'd be at home yeah um i actually interestingly didn't really take any time off work uh i carried on working oh i know i know when i think but the problem was tina you're a machine but we didn't get any um statutory sick pay or anything ah. like we didn't sorry we only got statutory sick pay right so i had to taken time off financially because paul didn't work things would have been really tough so i did quite a bit of working from home to catch up so um i did cut my hours down a little bit but then use the time at home and when charm's in hospital to catch up on things that i needed to and how did your employer handle that then um at the time i thought i thought reasonably well um it 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 turned out a different story which would be a whole nother podcast (laughs) i have a feeling Uh, you're gonna be coming back (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah so um that we we just kind of you create a new normal uh yeah. it, it's a really bizarre thing because hospital becomes your world and then when you're sent home you become kind of like so you feel a bit lost is it almost like being institutionalized yeah absolutely because you have what we call ward family uh, yeah. and you meet some incredible people through this journey and they're sharing it with you yeah aren't they, and they understand through, mm. they understand they understand the steroid rage which is called roid rage really i've never heard uh, of that roid rage is amazing <laughs> what it does to children is um i don't think it, i think it can affect adults but not quite as much as it does with children and what it does is it often gives them an insatiable appetite didn't with sean uh and it also makes them really quite angry so um one of the things that made me really smile which well there's a few things throughout his treatment was um i was once stood in the room and he was trying to watch the telly and bearing in mind at this time he's like five or six and he, he looked at me and went i'm trying to bloody watch the telly <laughs> and it was like a grown-up you know and then when he was five um they do the Monday ward round so he had his consultant come and then all the senior consultants and everybody else do the ward round yeah and they all gather around the bed like you see on the telly there's all these people and Sean leaned over to his consultant pointed his finger in her face and went I want you 
to tell all your friends to just go away. <laughs> and they did. They just disappeared. Oh. You know, that, but that's who he was anyway. He was very forthright. Yeah. But the steroids made him just that more edgy. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you'd brought up two teenagers, so you'd have been used to that. Absolutely. <laughs> it was just so funny. Um, and it, this carried on. And then, so uh, just over a year after he'd been diagnosed, he relapsed on treatment, which is not good. Right. And that was probably the darkest period in our lives where he ended up in intensive care. And you see, I said I wouldn't do this. <laughs> but that for me caused me a lot of problems because um, when when he first went up to intensive care, I was on my own at the hospital with him. And the consultant was saying, shall I ring Paul? And I'm saying, no, 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 it's fine, I'm fine. And she's like, well, let's get Paul. Like, no, no, we'll be all right, we'll go. When, when he's settled, I'll call him. Mm. And she turned round and she sort of like stood me in front of her and said, I need to ring him. This is not good. And that's when it finally hit me that, wow, you know, I've been through all this. <sighs> to possibly lose him to, um, he'd, he'd got... Um, sepsis and toxic shock right. so his organs were starting to fail and we were in intensive care and he yet again reacted very unusually in intensive care they could they couldn't understand what was happening because every time they tried to like lift his arm up to do something um, which they normally would or to move or to give him some medicine or something he arrested children don't do that apparently but sean decided that would be great to do that <laughs> so we had six episodes of cardiac arrest where they had to give him chest compressions and um that was awful they were saying if we can get through this minute then we can try with the next minute and it was like that for like 72 hours oh. until he suddenly just made a massive turnaround and recovered and was just like fine afterwards when we went back down onto the main ward i think we were there for i think we were on intensive care the, that time for about three weeks and when we went back to the ward he started telling us about what was happening while he was in a coma did he yes so was he in the coma while he was in he was icu in medical, was he in medically induced medically induced coma and he was ventilated right and he started to tell us about um things that were happening and what people were saying so we knew he'd not been totally sedated. Apparently that's quite an issue again when you've had a lot of treatment. Mm. Your tolerance levels raise. But they thought he was under. And we said, no, he's, he's, he's playing like he had a bit of a... When something was difficult, he did a bit of like um, a scared rabbit thing. He'd do a little bit of eyes closed on his back and just pretend he was asleep or wasn't listening. And that's what he used to do at home. That was He'd his do that thing. in hospital when things got tough. Ah, right. And then in ICU he was doing that so they thought he was fully sedated and actually he wasn't he wasn't no right some of it he was it wasn't all of it you know mm. but some of it he wasn't so he went back down onto the main ward which was the HDU part of the ward and he ended up with um, pneumonia which was they said it might happen which is because you've been ventilated for a long time you can get a pneumonia from that yeah so he had pneumonia, so he went up again. And they said, this is fine, you know, he'll need a rest, he'll need this, we'll get through this. And that wasn't quite as scary that time until they tried to take him off of the ventilator and he 
crashed again and they had to resuscitate him again which again wasn't usual and were you there at the time yes been there most times when mm. they've had to resuscitate him um the first time that they had to resuscitate him when we first went up um the nurse who was resuscitating she had one hand on and she was holding my hand to touch sean because she didn't want us to go that i really appreciate that she did it because if we'd have lost him at that time that would have been the last time that i touched him but at the time doing that was absolutely horrendous and after that day um the next day when we went up i couldn't actually go into the room i couldn't i couldn't physically walk into his room it was awful they had to get me a chair to sit in the doorway and then when i went into his room i had to lie on the floor because of how it had affected me seeing what i'd seen mm. Mm. and when he'd come out of icu the second time um things did start to improve and things got better after that and it, it um i mean that was another experience in itself going up the second time because he was poisoning himself with his own carbon monoxide uh, carbon dioxide, dioxide he couldn't right. get rid of it so it was passing in and out of consciousness then but when we got up to the ward that was their bread and butter like i said they'd seen this kind of thing lots and it was quite a usual thing and still whilst up there we were still having some chemotherapy as well whilst he was on icu so they were still and he developed diabetes while he was in there and that's that's quite normal from all the treatments so he was having insulin and so there were lots going on at one point in icu i think he had between 15 and 20 different medications all running oh, on that poor boy it was just everything going through me had um he already had a central line in his chest but then he had femoral artery central lines they were talking about putting one in his neck and when he went up because he was so punctured from everything else that they'd been on um they had to put a cannula in his neck and that was awful when freya was about two she had a blocked tear duct and she had to go under for half an hour in the hospital and have a tear duct yeah unblocked a half an hour and that is that was one of the worst half an hours of my life yeah. so i cannot imagine i mean i see you i've been in icu to visit a relative before yeah. and it was the more one of the most traumatic things i've done it's just a hot i, I can totally understand how you just couldn't face going in because yeah. i felt that way too but for it to be a child i just tina i just can't imagine it was just very difficult i mean that again though is where in that part of the story that a queen bo bobs in might that be Paula? That is our lovely Queen <laughs> Paula. Because I knew Paula. I'd been out on a couple of rides with her. I didn't know her very well. Um, and she just relentlessly pestered me in a good way to go out for a walk with her whilst she was in ICU when she'd finished a shift or something. Or she'd call and see me. And she just relentlessly kept on at me in a really positive way to, let's go and have a walk. I, I, I can't go home yet because I've got to wait for so-and-so. And I knew... In, on reflection it probably wasn't true but she i don't think she'd any idea at the time of how important that was just to have somebody who could just take me out of the situation for mm. 10 minutes and she were amazing and we've remained excellent friends now so she's just such a wonderful person is Paula, she really she? is she really is and that just shows you know that's her job but she took it above and beyond what she does for a job yeah because paula to, is to help she's a she's a nurse on the 
LGI Heart Ward, is it Children's Heart Ward? Yeah, she works on PICU, so she was actually on there with Sean, but she couldn't treat him because she knew us. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I felt comforted knowing that when I wasn't there, because it's well, you can't actually sleep on there either, so you can't sleep you with can't children. You can't sleep with them, right. No, I mean, you're allowed to stay if you want to, but it's like they explained to us when he was in ICU that you need to go and eat, you need to go and sleep. Absolutely. And, you know, I followed the advice. I mean, one of the nurses there, she diplomatically a few times would say to me, Tina, why don't you go get a drink or a sandwich? I'm like, oh, I- I'm going a bit, I'm all right. And, yeah, but why don't you just have a little wander? And I said, oh, no, I'm fine. I bet she went, yeah. And, I, and she was really being kind of kind and really sort of yeah. gentle. And I turned around and I said, Sam, are you just saying to me, Tina, go? Go, just bugger just, off. Just go. <laughs> and she went, I am. I said, please just tell me, don't pussyfoot around. Just say to me, Tina, you need a break, go. Sean's mm. stable, Sean's fine, go. Mm. And after that, and I remember one time when I'd had a really tough time in ICU with him, um, trying to go into the room and she got some Tic Tacs and she just walked up to me and she just went, on a Tic Tac. And it just kind of like, I just laughed. It just broke a moment. Yeah. And uh, Nurses have this special talent at doing yeah, that though, don't they? Yeah. Just bringing down the temperature. Yeah, and, and that's a... absolutely what she did mm. in a really stressful situation. Yeah. I bought her a packet when we came off ICU. I bought a really big packet of Tic Tacs <laughs> and I left them and said, well, you give them to Sam, she'll understand. <laughs> so, you know, that was just lovely. So let's talk about what happened next. So after he relapsed, um, he went in for a stem cell transplant after his transplant things went really well he had to have um, total body irradiation as well which meant that um, he would possibly have some later learning difficulties from that because of his age Mm. it doesn't affect children straight away but uh, because he had to have his head um, radiotherapy to his head as well when a couple of years down the line if children make a full recover they can have some learning difficulties because of because it affects the brain development yeah um it's touch and go it doesn't always happen but it is quite common the younger the child the worse mm. that is so that's something we had to look for so yay this bright child who was really kind like so we stayed in um three months you stay in three months with a transplant usually a, a, about that we were out really quick compared to what they thought we would be sean reacted really well he had some which is really important for those ladies who can to donate their um, cord blood right because if you can donate your cord blood when you've from had the a, umbilical cord yeah when you've had a baby um that can be stored and it can be given as a stem cell transplant to somebody do they ask that in hospital there's only certain areas that do it in london and i think in sheffield because I can't remember no. any time that I've had my three babies no. being asked to donate. There's only my... certain areas, so if you can, it'd be really good to get that, um, to be more of a national thing because it would help so many people, not just children. Uh, all sorts stem cells have been used for all sorts of things. It can grow god body parts and everything. Oh, I I so would have done that I had I been given the opportunity or known about it. Lots of people would. Lots of people saw. Sean had his stem cell transplant, which is quite uneventful. Um, all it is is a little bag about two inch by two inch that takes about three minutes to go through, and that's your stem cell transplant. Wow! Done. I know it's pretty incredible, is that bit? People think that's really invasive. It's not. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, there's just one great thing for about two or three days after you've had that. 
because of the preservatives used in the um, stem cells and the things they use to treat it your child smells sweet corn for three days <laughs> and it you know sweet corn might be nice once or twice but three days of smelling <laughs> your room of co- it's just not nice that's such a weird thing i know it's so bizarre isn't it but uh. something you just wouldn't know about so, I imagine I've had my child smell a worse, to be fair. Yeah, I didn't think sweet corn could be that bad when they told us about it, but believe me, three days confined to an isolation room of smelling sweet corn, yeah, I, I don't really eat much of it anymore. Do you? No. No, I really don't. No. So anyway, we came home then, and things were going really well. Um, so we came home in February 2017, and things were going really, really well. Uh, but then at the end of March, end of may he started to complain that his back was hurting a bit and that's one of the symptoms so we by the 6th of june um we'd realized something was really wrong he still had regular checkups at the hospital we were there twice a week sometimes because that doesn't stop after a transplant yeah and um they told us then that he'd relapsed they took the blood on the friday um which will have been around about the 4th of June, I think. And by the Thursday after that, his body was 95% leukaemic cells and there was nothing more they could do. And he he died um, 10 days after diagnosis. So we, we didn't get much time to get used to it. The only thing that we got used to was the fact that we might always lose him. You know, we, we knew that. So... Candlelighters, a wonderful charity in Yorkshire that supports families of children with cancer, um, offered to do a Make a Memories Day for us. So he re- he was mad on the Disney film Cars and he wanted to see Cars 3. It was coming out in July, but we were told he probably wouldn't make it to July to right. see it in the general cinemas. Um, so they arranged for us to go up to Edinburgh to the Edinburgh Film Festival to watch Cars 3. So we went up on the train because we didn't want Sean sat in a car for five hours or yeah. something. So we said if we can go on the train. So we went up on the train and we got checked out of the hospital that morning. He had platelets because you have lots of transfusions and platelets when you're on treatment. Mm-hmm. And um, they gave us something because he kept getting nosebleeds. Um, so we travelled up. We got to the hotel and it, it, things were great. We were going to the film festival the next day and he suddenly started hallucinating. And we were a bit like, he started saying, why is Thomas talking to me? And we're like, what do you mean? He's like, he's there. He's over there. Can't you see him? Right. I'm like, okay. And it, we ended up going to Edinburgh Children's Hospital. And what it turns out that the fentanyl patches um, that they gave him for pain relief, when you have a temperature, when you're ill, it's absorbing to the body really quickly and it makes you hallucinate. He, he did have pneumonia. Right. And we ended up, um, we promised him, when when he became terminal, we promised him we'd never take him back to ICU. We made that promise to him because we could. Yeah. So we went on to the high dependency ward. We we said to him, we, you're not ventilating him and you're not taking us to ICU. And they said, well, we wouldn't want to anyway. When they said he'd got pneumonia, we knew that that was going to be the beginning of the end. You know, it was like, that was it. So one of the cardiologists asked us why we were um, 
why we were up in Edinburgh, you know, the new charm was ill, but what what was our occasion? And we said, well, we were going to do the film festival, but we're clearly not going to be able to go now, which is really disappointing. And um, he went, well, I I do know somebody who works at the film festival. They might be able to get you a picture or a T-shirt or something. I said, that'd be fantastic. Thank you very much. So off we went. We went on to the one. We were then concerned with Sean because he wasn't on a ventilator, but it was on, um, it's called um, an oscillator to help him breathe, which puts um, air in and things. Right. Um, and um, somebody brought in an envelope and said, the storyboard writer from Disney has sent these over for you. So the guy who did the storyboard for the film had drawn Sean two of the cars so oh. that was just amazing oh but my goodness it gets better um the next day um we found out during the night while sean had been ill um they'd been in touch with disney at california had the hospital this guy and somebody and working with the film festival and they'd been in touch with california and they'd managed to get a streaming of the uh, sort of it was the european release of the film oh wow and they brought it to the hospital for sean they brought a telly they brought speakers and then they just shut the doors on the room and left us to it i mean you know what incredible trust there we could have done anything with that dv with that we could have yeah emailed. We yeah anything with that mm. a massive amount of trust went into the fact that we wouldn't do anything with that but what a wonderful thing for sean he was pretty much in and out of consciousness at this point so we um we were telling him what was going on and it, it was we knew we was kind of listening and then he suddenly opened his eyes and he went you got the film for me you got it it's mine Aww. so he knew so we what anyway we watched this disney film and um they let us know that the sea king helicopter had been sent up for us to take us back down to leeds that's what candlelighters had arranged for that to happen right what an amazing charity and um unfortunately only one of us could travel in the sea king sean wanted it to be me and i said to paul i said i can't be on my own without you so we said we're not going that was really hard because we didn't want to we didn't want him to die in Edinburgh. We wanted him to be at to home. To be at home. Or at least in Leeds in the hospital. But Sean decided otherwise. So we stayed at the hospital. And actually, when I think back, I'm really glad. Because the hospital doesn't exist anymore. I don't know whether you know this. No. Um, Edinburgh Children's Hospital moved. I think it was last year. So it's kind of a special place but it's somewhere where we know we never have to visit again yeah yeah you know so his death was nice Mm. even though that sounds bizarre i don't think it does i think after all that you'd been through and all that he'd been through how long you know you you just couldn't keep on his body was shot Mm. if you looked at his body he had a lot of problems afterwards having sean go through all that for us the kindest thing was to say enough's enough enough it's time yeah yeah, yeah. and tell him because we did we said yeah. to him you know close your eyes now you've done enough tina you just admit <laughs> honestly you just blow me blow me away you do with your strength oh. and your 
uh, all those things you've been through. So fast forwarding yes. to 2019. Yes. We now have a new story starting. We do. <laughs> we decided that we'd gained a lot of experience um, with our eldest son and with what we'd been through with Sean. And we thought we knew that there were a lot of children in foster care that never had a chance um, because there weren't enough people wanting to foster. But we also knew that there were so many more children with complex needs that would never get to live in a family. So we sort of said, let's do complex health needs. Let's get a child who would never normally be considered for adoption and would really struggle to be fostered mm -hmm. because of the complex needs. And we went through the process, which was quite speedy. We started it in May and we had our first foster child move in with us in November. And he's a five-year-old little boy with complex health needs and he's just amazing. <laughs> he's just amazing. He's with us short-term currently with a view to being long-term if things go to plan. Okay. Uh, he's just fabulous. Is he? And that's what led us to being where we are today <laughs> <laughs> that is one incredible incredible journey tina and i've said this to you to your face before the world needs more tinas well i'll try and grow a few <laughs> <laughs> we need to clone martinas and and of course more pauls because yeah. behind every tina there's a really great paul there is because without him i wouldn't be able to do what we do and i think he feels the same we're a very strong team mm. um it's not me on my own it's us together and you know what just to mention to our daughter because i had this teenage daughter who um was how teenagers are and then one day she walked into icu when sean was in there and she turned around and she went right mum off you go get a coffee get some a tweet me and Joe will stay. We'll look after Stevie. He can come home with us. You come back in a bit. And I'll just look around and... Who is this girl? Where did she come from? <laughs> Who is this responsible, sensible, thoughtful... Uh, yeah, and mm. do you know what? She's just grown from strength to strength since then. She's an amazing, amazing daughter and a wonderful mum. That's just fabulous. So. Tina, thanks so much, so much for coming in and telling this story. I imagine that there are people in similar positions to you that can understand just, you know, all the things that you've gone through and that you're going through. And also for for those of them that have lived effectively a charmed life and have not had to face this, it's just incredible. So what would you say to, to finish off what would you say to somebody who was considering fostering i would say if you're considering it you're halfway there right so if you're thinking about it you you know you've and it's not as daunting as you think the process to become a foster carer can be quite invasive but actually it can be quite cathartic and you can learn a lot about yourself and who you are and what your strengths are and what your abilities are and i would say if you're thinking about it just go through it you can always say no when you get to the end if it's not for you say no but you know what it just might be right just might be right fabulous 
thank you so much for your time i'm going to be putting in the show notes some ideas and some links of where you can go for more information about posturing if you so uh, choose to look into it a bit more um i think it's important to know that 72 percent of looked after children in the uk are currently in foster care but there is a shortage of foster carers because the other 28% are in some sort of institutionalised care home and you know there is a shortage of foster carers so if you are thinking about it look into it click on the links have a look so I'm going to finish this podcast with a fact of the day And the fact of the day today is that, did you know, Tina, that there are more women aged between 50 and 54 than any other demographic in the UK? So more than 20-year-olds, more than teenagers, more than 30s and 40s. So us women form a really huge part of the UK audience. So what I want to know is, why are adverts always featuring young new by old people yes you know why have we not got more more advertising more media involvement because we form the biggest part of the population wow that's incredible i know that is a really good fact for the day so there you go advertisers i reckon these women aged 50 to 54 have more disposable income than those new bile 22 year olds that you keep posting on uh, adverts and everything <laughs> yeah, <else>. i agree <laughs> so thank you so much tina thank you